the OT Digest podcast. In this first episode, we will hear from three of the five authors of a research paper entitled A Need for Occupational Justice, The Impact of Racial Microaggressions on Occupations, Wellness, and Health Promotion. The authors include Emily Gruyon, Carlnicia Honeycutt, Melissa Morrison, Olandria Langford, and Mita Welly. Emily, Carlnicia, and Mita discuss the importance of identifying racial microaggressions as an occupational therapist, a background about why they decided to complete this review of the literature, and whether OTs have a role in addressing these microaggressions. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have three wonderful people on today. Um, I'd love to introduce you to them and get to hear about what awesome work they had done and what they um, good tips they want to share with us today about um, OT and racial microaggressions. So here's Dr. Carlnicia Honeycutt. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Carlnicia Honeycutt, and I am an occupational therapist. I actually graduated from Novo Southeastern University entry-level doctorate of occupational therapy program in 2018. So I've been practicing a little over a year. Uh, The settings I primarily work in is skilled nursing. And um, recently I just started getting into virtual reality telehealth therapy. So I'm excited about that. Now, is there, do you have a favorite occupation besides work? (laughs) So my favorite occupation is uh, eating and dancing. Those are two good things. (laughs) How about um, we'll hop over to Dr. Emily Gruyong. Hi, Katie. Hi, everybody. Uh, So as Katie said, my name is Emily Gruyong. I graduated with my entry-level doctorate in occupational therapy at Nova Southeastern University in 2018 along with Carnesia and the, the practice areas that I primarily work in. Um, since graduating, I have um, started my path towards uh, the CHT. So I primarily work in hand therapy and I was recently hired for the role of uh, adjunct assistant professor at West Coast University. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that as well. And as far as my favorite occupation, I got to agree with Carnesia, eating is great. <laughs> I'm trying foods from different cultures. Uh, one of my favorite things to do. And I enjoy getting outside, spending time in nature uh, to reset. I didn't know you were going for your CHT. That is um, a daunting feat, but that's awesome that you're doing that. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. And then finally, uh, we have Dr. Mirta Whaley. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I, um, I've been an occupational therapist for over 50 years. And if anybody does the math, I'm going to be really upset. Started out in, um, accidentally started out in mental health. And, and then I loved it. And I stayed in it for a long, long time. Besides that, some experience with uh, adult and elderly uh, rehabilitation, and particularly in the area of dementia. I came to academia academia late. Uh, I'm a late bloomer. I pursued a master's and a public health doctorate in 19, 
93 the first one and 2007 the second one. And then I entered the area of academia, um, working both at um, Florida International University and later at NOVA, Southeastern University in Tampa, where I taught Pranisha uh, and Emily both. My, my shift to public health, I think, was a really important step in my life because while in the clinic, I could see uh, the issues of one client and one family at a time, um, entering public health gave me like a bird's eye view, and it really made me very aware of the public health consequences of our practice, which I had not even thought about before. So I come into OT as a professor with kind of like a very different mindset. Um, and, and because of that interest in areas like we're talking about today, social and occupational justice. Wow, that's a really great story of how your journey led you to where you are today. And I, I have heard more OTs going into public health. That has seems to be a, a common theme that I'm noticing. Um, and that's something I haven't really thought of, but that makes total sense. Personally, I think that anybody pursuing a degree in medicine, nursing, uh, any of the rehab therapies, anything that has to do with health should have public health background because I really think that it defines your practice a lot different. And what I forgot to tell you is that I retired two years ago. And as to my favorite occupation, uh, pre or post pandemic, <laughs> That's a good uh, question. <laughs> I, I love cooking, so. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sure you've gotten to make some great meals. Well, yeah, we're just gonna take some time. Um, I met Karnishia, Emily, and Mirta um, just by reach, finding their article online when all of the racial injustices were going on um, in the height of that in April, I believe. And I just really wanted to share them to be able to have a platform to share their work and what they did because it was just, it was so much great work and, and you could tell you guys spent a long time on it. So just wanted to give you the opportunity to share what is the what is the general overview of the article for maybe someone who didn't read it yet? Well, the article um, starts off by introducing what isms are, for one, and what microaggressions are as well, and how um, there are various types of microaggressions um, that in turn limit participation in occupations. But it also goes into, um, it touches on systemic and social injustices as well that limit participation in occupation. Um, and we look at the, um, we look in the article, we look at the micro and the, the macro levels of racism and how each of them feed on each other. And again, once again, limit participation and occupation. And that was like a big part of the introduction, which I really appreciated how you guys broke it down. That was helpful for me as someone that maybe didn't have all the definitions clearly laid out. And that was just a good starting point, I felt like, to know. I also wanted to add that occupational justice is a big component of our paper and essentially occupational therapists role in issues such as racial microaggressions as well as uh, injustices that do happen on the systemic level and so occupational justice is our way of explaining what OTs can do about this and how this is encompassed within our practice. When this idea of the article came up and 
and I was approached um, for being a part of it. And this was strictly their idea as students in the program. I, I was familiar enough with bias and prejudice, and I was familiar with the whole idea of health disparities and all of that. I had never really stopped to think about some of the communication and the fact that they were essentially microaggressions. They were intended to define an individual, to um, strip the individual of their self-esteem, and to institutionalize um, a bigger type of bias and prejudice. And so, and that I learned from them. So just to give you that perspective from my part. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that was what I took away the most that these microaggressions are not, are not uncommon experience of, of people and um, how it can't just be accepted as the norm. It, it needs to be challenged. And I, I really appreciated you know, having my eyes open to that for sure. Yeah, I want to add also that there are uh, a few types of microaggressions. Um, so what microaggressions are themselves, they are brief everyday exchanges changes that send denigrating, denigrating messages to people of color because they belong to a racial minority group. When we reviewed the literature, we reviewed a lot of findings from uh, Dr. D.W. Sue, who is a psychologist at Columbia University. He has quite a few publications on microaggressions, which dive into depth, various types of microaggressions. So there are microassaults, which are explicit racial derogations characterized by verbal or nonverbal attacks that are meant to hurt victims through name calling, avoided behaviors, or purposeful discriminatory actions. So those are your um, very overt forms of racism that we see today. There are also micro insults, which are communications that convey rudeness and insensitivity and demean a person's racial, racial heritage or identity. There are also micro-invalidations that are communications that exclude, negate, or nullify the psychological experiences and reality of persons of color. So micro-insults and micro-invalidations can be more so, um, what's the word? Not necessarily intentional. People who participate in these don't always know that they're participating in them. I feel like that's a good, good to know that, and I think that is an important part of kind of even just checking ourselves on a daily basis too, um, to even know that these terms and be able to catch ourselves, you know, in the moment for sure. Um, and how sometimes we're not aware and how awareness is that first step. I definitely will link to that article or what you were describing, Emily, in the show notes. So if someone is interested in learning more about that um, and reading up on that, I'll, I'll make sure that there's a link. I don't know if, if it's pertinent to say that, but at the time that um, that the idea of the article came up and the interest in that was kind of watching what was happening and some of, of personal experiences and all that, the interesting thing about the article is that I think it is more salient today than, um, than we even suspected it was going to be because Although all of the racial, the microaggressions and the bias and all that was there, uh, it seems that there has been an eruption of that. 
Um, and so it, it seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. And so I'm, I'm impressed by that with the work that was done. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree that um, that's kind of what it leads me to the next question. You know, how did this topic for a research article come about in 2016 and kind of what were the, the motivations behind that? Emily initially approached myself and the co-authors and the other two, uh, Melissa Morrison and Olandria Langford, who were Nova South Eastern University students, uh, to be a part of this development. And the reason she approached us is because we shared our personal experiences occurred throughout our lifetime and how that affected us. And then uh, we were also looking at what was occurring in the United States at the time. So we had the presidential election. We also had uh, Black Lives Matter movement, even though it began before 2016, I believe it began in 2013, but they were really active in this election as well. And then we were also looking at um, topics at the time. So ISIS was a big topic. We noticed that there was an increase in Islamophobia. Uh, there was an increase in uh, people joining white supremacist groups during you know, this presidential election. And then also the police brutality. And then the big thing with building a wall between the Mexican and U.S. border as well and racist rhetoric that was going on, stating build that wall. And there was just so much going on <laughs> at that time. And so we were considering that as well. And we were looking for a term to explain what we were experiencing. And with that, we were in, um, we were enrolled in Mirtha's wellness course. And in that wellness course, we looked at issues of marginalization, occupational injustices, such as occupational deprivation. Um, Martha was really big, as she stated, she has a background in public health. So she really brought that component into the course and she made us think beyond the Western medical model, essentially, um, and how we could address issues of injustices and what our role necessarily is. So that was another thing that motivated us to look into what, what are we experiencing? So that's when Emily found, um, she read the literature on Sue et al, Dr. D.W. Sue and his co-authors on microaggression. And with that, we once we found that term and we understood what microaggressions were, we looked at now, how does that impact participation in day-to-day -day life? And so we investigated that even more and we just decided to tie that into the OT profession. That's when we learned, we, we overheard occupational justice, of course, but we decided to dwell dive deeper into it to understand what that is and how we could use that to essentially combat microaggressions or basically state what OT's role is specifically within the United States, just because we weren't seeing that OTs in the U.S. practice from the medical model, but on paper, what we learn what the OT profession is, what we learn what occupation is and everything like that, they ask us to consider social constructs, social context, but the Western model is more so focused in the, uh, the physical and OT is more than that. So that's really what motivated us to research this topic. What particularly got me going was, you know, as Carnesha mentioned, uh, Donald Trump had just been elected in the United States. There was a 
a lot going on. We started seeing more hate crimes within the United States at the time. Uh, we started, I was reading articles um, that were discussing people's experiences. There were children who were going to school after this election, Mexican children, and being told to go back to their countries when those children were born in this country as well. And I started thinking, how are these children supposed to participate and learn in an environment like this? And um, this is more than bullying in a sense. Um, so these, these are the conversations um, that we started having. Then I also experienced something myself when I was living in Western Colorado. I was doing my pediatric rotation in Grand Junction, Colorado, and I uh, was walking my dog and my neighbor told me to go find my green card. And I couldn't go to field work the next day or because I, I couldn't stop crying after that incident. Um, and I saw that it really affected my occupation as a student at the time being. So yeah, we explored what microaggressions were and then we really thought about how they impacted occupations, um, all occupations, depending on, on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I've heard stories similar pop up and I think that that is just powerful to know that others, you know, that's not okay. And, and that is also a shared experience, unfortunately. And that's why this article is, is so important. I, I also wanted to note that given the climate of the U.S. in 2016, I, we were well aware that this isn't anything new. I think what we saw in 2016 was a shift and how social media was being used. So many people were using their social media platform to bring aware, awareness to the injustices that were occurring in the US, as well as people were really active during this presidential election as well on social media. So I think that was a, a big thing as well. People were seeing it. There were videos. Um, people were sharing their experiences, as Emily stated, uh, that she was reading articles. Or we joined pages that were focused on racism and how that impacted people's lives. And we started seeing that it was impacting their participation um, in day-to-day -day life. So yeah, the social media really just spread awareness to that. And then also people were able to share their opinions either deemed good or bad, whatever side they were on. But I just wanted to note that we know that this has been going on prior to 2016. It's just more overt now. And also to add, um, we, we were in OT school at the time. We all know how OT school is. We learn a lot about the philosophy of our profession. And we are taught to advocate for participation and occupation when in school. And we were looking around as students. We saw that there weren't many people who, who were concerned with this, um, with what was happening, with how people were being treating, treated. Um, and when I say many people who were concerned, um, at the time we were looking at our peers and, and how they were responding to this and how it's important to advocate beyond the medical model in terms of how occupations are impacted. Um, and then we also had Dr. Whaley at the time. And uh, again, with her public health background, we, uh, we dived deeper into um, what we were looking at. Dr. Whaley, what was the name of that class? Occupational wellness? Uh, that class was um, wellness and 
<laughs> wellness and occupational therapy. And that was a class that I designed. And unlike other classes and presentations that I have heard about wellness and health promotion, um, I wanted my students to think outside of the medical model. I wanted them to think about social conditions that keep people from engaging in occupations and that in turn affect their health and their well-being. And so I challenged them to think outside of the box. And the first class was a riot because everybody kept wanting to talk about medical conditions and I kept saying no. And in my first course, we ended up actually looking at um, sex trafficking of minors in the United States. And I learned a lot from my students in that class because there were things that I had not considered that they began to teach me as did this group of students that challenged me to think about um, microaggressions and racial disparities and all that in a different way than I had been looking at it. That's your question. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I was just thinking how I went to Duquesne University and we had a class called Community and World Health, but I don't think we had anything we might have had one that was similar. I have to look, but how great would that be if every every school had that? So I know we're going to talk about that later, but um, sorry, a little, little sneak peek. <laughs> well, feel free to give them my name. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity um, lecturer, so yeah. Awesome, I love it. <laughs> little, little promo there. So um, you wrote the article, and then you know you did the big the big review. Um, what surprised you guys what did you find that was like yeah that makes exact sense to what we were thinking or that that we did not think that this would go in this direction you know kind of surprised you or some of those things one of the findings that really surprised us um was uh knowing um off of the literature that we that we explored um was that uh there was a perception that blacks had a higher pain tolerance than those of white skin. So they thought this, medical doctors particularly thought this because they, they thought that blacks had thicker skin than whites. What that tells us is that they were being treated differently than their white counterparts when seeking medical treatment. Yeah, I remember reading that and saying, oh my goodness, you know, how does that impact so many things? It's just that one incorrect assumption. So, and... To add on to what Emily just stated, we also saw in the literature that uh, health professionals often believe that Black people were exaggerating their pain symptom in efforts to receive pain medication to achieve other purposes as to get high as opposed to alleviate pain. Uh, so that was interesting that they just had that assumption and with that they weren't receiving at, at, um, equal access to healthcare. Um, another surprising finding is that the mortality rate for Black mothers during childbirth is higher than their white counterparts, which is surprising because it's like if we do have access to the same healthcare in the United States, why is the mortality rate higher for one race? And then we look deeper into that and there's comorbidities that are often found higher in the um, Black community, such as diabetes, 
heart disease. And because of those comorbidities, they relate that to higher death rate in Black mothers during childbirth. But then we have to think further. It's like, well, do they have equal access to the uh, resources or quality health care to prevent these comorbidities that often occur at a higher rate in the Black community? So you just have to keep looking further into it because sometimes what health professionals do is they'll place the blame on the person because of the way that they chose their lifestyle and uh, without considering, well, what resources do they have? What knowledge do they have? What access do they have to receive this quality information? And then also health insurance is a big thing. If people lack health insurance, they're not going to receive quality health care or they're not likely going to seek medical help because they can't afford to pay out of pocket for certain procedures or health necessities that others may be able to. So there were multiple variables that goes into this high mortality rate during childbirth. And I thought that was interesting to see. And basically we have to find the root of the cause in order to make change. We can't just stop at, well, it's their comorbidities. They're at higher risk because of their life choices and then just keep it going. <laughs> like it's your fault and move forward. Yeah, also going along with that, um, just going back to the pain tolerance um, evidence that we found, I, as a hand therapist, I am directly in the medical model during my level two in hand therapy. I mean, I saw my CIs um, partake in these, uh, in these injustices as well. Um, so it's our system and it's also the fact that there are healthcare providers out there who are going out to treat their patients and allowing their preconceived biases to influence their treatment of care for these people. I, I mean, I've heard providers say pretty bad things about patients. I remember this woman who was a Mexican woman, um, Spanish speaking, and we were treating her and treatment was not successful, according to my CI at the time, because she had um, she was lying about her pain. There were implications that she wants that she was malingering. But if you also look at people and look at cultures, we know that pain is perceived differently um, based on on cultures. Something else that I want to touch on um, is Carnesha made the points about um, healthcare and how that also impacts impacts care. There are also providers out there who judge patients based on what type of health insurance they have. They judge a patient before meeting them. And if the patient is on Medicaid, there's a perception that also impacts the quality of care that they're going to get. So this is a problem within our system. And again, this is, this is happening because you have those micros and you have those macros that are feeding off of each other. And, and I know that uh, uh, Mita can really elaborate on this one. I can, you know me well. <laughs> But I also wanted to play devil's advocate on this one um, in, in a couple of ways. One is that um, sometimes that perception may not be a malignant perception. That perception may be the product of our culture and of the majority, what the majority has been exposed to. So if I have not experienced what other people have experienced, 
I don't understand their condition. And what I find really interesting is that for years we have been talking about cultural competence, which is really something that fires me up um, because we came to understand that there were very narrow boundaries of cultures that if we understood it, we would know things about the patients that we were treating. And that's not true. I am a Cuban born Cuban American. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a citizen. My evolution by being in the United States and by going through the experiences that I have, don't put me in the same box as other Cuban Americans, even people of my age. So we need to kind of dispel the notion that we can come to understand that. Then we talk about cultural effectiveness and that's really good. That means that we have the ability to work across cultures because we have a curiosity and we're willing to ask the questions and to understand their perspective. But at the same time that that could be a door opener, I'm really afraid that sometimes it serves to narrow our thinking even more. And we need to realize that those terms were not intended to be the boundaries, they were intended to be the door to understand other people. The other thing I wanted to say is that unfortunately, it doesn't work just one way. It works both ways, because I know that we have all had experiences where we have had patients of other cultures or even of a different gender that have preconceived notions about who they are by the fact that we're female therapists or that we are of another cultural group or that our skin tone looks different. So I, I want to make sure, and this is why I'm playing devil's advocate, that it works both ways. Um, and obviously we are more interested in what, how we can fix our ways of looking at our patients so that we don't victimize them, so that we don't weaponize their culture or their background against them. And I thought that was important to say. Did I say something unexpected, Emily? No, I think that's a very good point to make. We initially started after we learned what microaggressions were from Dr. D.W. Sue's literature, we started looking into the occupational therapy literature, particularly within the U.S., uh, to see what they had on this. And we found that there was limited research on this or literature on this topic. And we more so started to see some literature from occupational therapists based in other countries. So that was surprising as well, just because of how we understood what occupational therapy was. We were surprised to find there was so little um, information out there and more so the literature out there is based on, in the U.S. is based on the Western medical model. And we really had to look into other bodies of knowledge just because we noticed that gap in the OT literature. So what we found is that Canada, they're really ahead of the game. Um, they've been, they're really promoting occupational justice, uh, occupational therapy as a very holistic profession because their literature, there is um, plenty addressing occupational injustices and how that relates to the profession and how that, um, that affects a person as a whole. I think, I wonder how that I, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but that shift to the medical model is just so different from what OT originated as and 
how that happened and I don't know, that's a whole nother conversation, but how that really changed how we treat and how we are taught and unfortunately, and I think we've got, we lost some quality there and the holisticness there. I think one of the things that the article really focused on was social justice in its relationship to occupational justice, which um, I know social justice is a pretty well-known term, but well-known term, but occupational justice isn't as well-known, maybe in, in the OT world, but I think even in the OT world, people don't always hear it. So I'd love to hear the relationship between those two terms. I think what we need to understand is that there's really, there's really not a whole lot of difference, and there is. One is that the notion of social justice has been with us for a long, long time, and it actually came out of the Christian doctrine that we should take care of the people that are less than we are. Um, and it's been defined through the ages, and, and it's been debated by philosophers and all that. But what we've come to understand is that it really is colored by the culture and by the beliefs and the values of the culture. So it depends on who you're talking to of, of how this comes about. Social justice came about as a kind of a way to address human rights. And we don't become aware of social justice when it's happening. We see social justice when it's not. When we have a social injustice, that's when we become aware that something is wrong. Um, when social justice is occurred, just like when occupational justices uh, happen, that's when, when our eyes are open. And while social justice speaks to the ability to access resources, occupational justice speaks to the ability of doing something with them and of having an outcome for them. So in my understanding through the reading that I have done and my conversations with Emily and with Carnesia is that occupational justice was actually the, the way to operationalize social justice. This is what it means, but now what do you do with it? And how do you make it happen? And what does it look like? And what are the outcomes and the products that you get from it? But they're both very similar in, in the way um, that they address the needs. And the idea is not new, definitely has been put forth in a number of uh, societal statements and in our own professional documents. But I want to call attention to the fact that this was spoken about in the Universal Declaration of Rights that the United Nations put forth in 1948 and that they continue to talk about and, and to publish about in other documents that came subsequent to that. And actually, if, if you can humor me, it, it was actually taken up by the World Federation of Occupational Therapists and in their uh, 2016 position statement on human rights, these are the uh, things that they identify. One is the right to participate in a range of occupations that support health, development and inclusion, Another one is the right to make choices and to share the power to make decisions in daily life. Another one is the right to experience meaning and enrichment. And the other one is the right to receive fair privileges from participation. But the World Federation went uh, beyond that to say that people had the right to be supported so that they could participate in occupations. And they acknowledge that um, our diversity and our different views of occupation and the way in which we do things is something that we need to keep in mind. Occupational justice is not a one-size-fits-all 
across the world. It's really bound in culture and in, in the culture of values. And one thing that I've become aware is that while we continue to practice the sterile medical model, um, there are countries out there that have looked at occupational therapy in a different way because of the environment, the context in which they practice and because of the things that are going on. So when you talk to uh, Dr. Frank Cronenberg from South Africa, when you talk to the therapists who worked in Colombia to uh, kind of bridge the gap between the citizens and the people that were putting down their arms, um, when you talk to uh, Dr. Amy Paul Ward about the social and occupational injustices that are put upon uh, children in the, um, in the system, you know, it really is colored by what people are experiencing at the time. I don't know if that makes sense to people, but that, that's something that we need to, to be aware of. And, and we need to remember that we were born out of activism. We came out in, at a time when the conditions for people that were mentally ill were, were abhorrent. And we took up a cause for them. And actually, we continue to be activists and to, um, to help our clients. You know, if a client needs a ramp, we're the first one that, that go there and say he needs a ramp so he can get in and out of the house. If they need adaptive equipment, if they need to have extended time in therapy. So activism and advocacy are still part of the profession, but they're really limited within the medical model as opposed to some of the other countries that we see. Yeah, I love that phrase of born out of activism. That's very powerful. It was. Yeah, I think that like going back to our roots has always been something that strengthens and informs me, at least when I, when I feel like I'm getting off, when I have a really complicated patient and I try to just stick to the, you know, what is OT, you know, what, what, how can I help this client the best? And no, that's, that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then I also definitely share that um, position statement. I'll find that and, and link to that if anyone wants to read that. As well. I would urge everyone that listens to the podcast to go back and find the United Nations Universal, let me go back over here, Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, because it really speaks of ju uh, social and occupational justice. It doesn't call it that, doesn't call it occupational justice, but it's what we talk about. And we were chatting briefly about the medical model um, one of the problems we've had in this country is that in contrast to Western European countries that embrace the idea of social justice way back in the 1940s, we have come to equate social justice with socialism and wrongly with communism. And it's not that at all. And so we defend against it by defending against becoming a socialist country. You can have social justice. Uh, as a matter of fact, social security is a form of social justice, but we don't recognize it that way. So I think what keeps it bound to the medical model here and to therapists being a little bit reluctant is the fact that we, uh, we tend to think of it in terms of uh, then we become a socialistic country by doing that. That's interesting. I mean, that, make, that makes sense. That could cause a difficulty of change if that's your, your mentality too, or resistance to change. If you have an opportunity to think about, not to think about it, if you think about it and have an opportunity to talk to other people, 
while we're in the medical model and our occupations uh, are mostly, and some people are going to disagree and argue with me on this, we mostly think in terms of ADLs, IADLs, and sometimes we go beyond that to, you know, leisure and other things, but the, the medical model bounds us. Because of reimbursement, we have to be in a particular uh, area. And so occupations for us are more limited than if you talk to a Dr. Cronenberg or if you talk to you know, his wife or if you talk to some of the other OTs that are practicing in countries that are um, really experiencing the extreme of occupational and social injustice. And from there, and I'm, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but I wanna <laughs> hear from you guys. Do you think OTs have a role with racial justice? And if so, and, and occupational justice? And if so, what does that look like? So um, I think we do have a role in occupational justice and in social justice. I think that because we have different mindsets and we have different perspectives, um, the whole issue of racism may be more difficult for some people than for others. So all we can do is raise awareness and educate. But I really do believe that if we believe that people should have access to occupation, if we believe that people have the right to health, then there's no way to escape it because these are the things that are limiting the opportunities for people. What do you guys yeah, think? I, definitely, definitely we need to, if we are a profession that advocates for participation and, and occupation, we need to recognize that there are barriers that are beyond physical, um, that there, these barriers are social or a biopsychosocial barriers that limit participation and occupation. So that are caused by occupational and racial injustices. Yes, and um, I want to know that it is, it is evident that racial inequities, um, they occur within uh, the domains and subcategories of occupation. So there's, there is a dynamic relationship there and we do have to take these social contexts um, or these social constructs and see how that is affecting someone's ability to participate in their day-to-day -day life. I mean, we're concerned with education. So back to what Emily stated before, one of the articles that we found surprising was what the children were dealing with in school and um, Mexican children were dealing with in school with people telling them to go back to their country. That's our occupation. It's impacting their education. Access to healthcare and how people of color are receiving healthcare, you know, that's a part of health management, which is now uh, the ninth domain in the OTBF4. Um, initially, it was a, a subcategory in um, IADLs, but still, it's a domain or it was a subcategory before. Um, that's another aspect of how it's impacting occupation. So there, that relationship is there and um, those social variables affect participation throughout our, you know, our lifetime. And I think it's important that we also look at it as, so yes, we are human beings, but we really consider or look into us being occupational beings just because we are engaging in occupations throughout the lifespan. And I did want to note and recommend an article to read uh, by Townsend and Wilcock in 2004, they published an article that discusses the 
occupational therapy dialogue or occupational justice. And what they did too was they used, they understood justice from an OT perspective. And so the bodies of knowledge they used to understand this was occupation and client-centered practice, being that that is a part of occupational therapy. We push for client-centered practice as well as that holistic approach and occupation. I mean, that's what occupational therapy is based on. And so when you consider that and you look at us as, or you look at human beings as occupational being, you really start to see and understand how all these variables, including these social constructs, yes, it is in paper, but as we stated, we more primarily look at the physical constructs, but how these social constructs such as uh, systemic racism impacts participation impacts us as being. So I think that is a, a great article to uh, further understand what occupational justice is and understand the relationship, maybe make that connection with that relationship to racial justice, social justice, or whatnot, our role in justice. I mean, it's in our core values. We wanted to note that as of recently, AOTA even came out with a statement, a statement uh, in May, at the end of May in 2020, with everything that was going on with, you know, um, police brutality, the shootings, George Floyd, particularly, that's what it was brought upon by the murder of George Floyd. AOTA made a position statement regarding our role in occupational therapist responsibility and justice to look at how certain factors impact um, participation. There, there is also an article published by Rebecca Aldrich um, in the American Journal, Journal of Occupational Therapy. And in the article, she states that occupational therapists in the United States have yet to take on the responsibility of addressing occupational injustices within their practice. So it is our duty. It's just something that um, many are not doing enough of. We need to work on that. And, and again, if you don't mind, um, the devil's advocate thing that I like to do, part of that is that we're not allowed to because when health became a business and therapy became a business, we really are bound by the rules of the company that we work for. So, you know, trying to call attention to things in a certain way within the workplace put you at risk of losing your job. And don't take me wrong. I think some people don't do it because they don't see it. They don't want to, they're not interested. But I think as a, as a group, um, we are constrained by the practice itself. And while I don't want anyone to lose their jobs over raising questions and stuff like that, as long as you're advocating for your client, as long as you're trying to educate other people as to why this person is not non-compliant. This person just doesn't have the resources to do what you're asking them to do. And, and that we can all do. I think that we need to realize that we not only have a professional platform, which I would like to see AOTA get more involved in addressing these things, but we have a personal platform. And that as individuals, we can call attention to injustices. We can find out who do, we, who do we group with to do something about this? So we have a professional and an individual level that we can address these injustices. Um, and again, not everybody's interested. Some people think that we're um, blowing out hot air. 
but some people will understand that these are the realities that we're living with. And when I became a therapist, we had all the time in the world. We did not have the constraints that we had. And we could advocate and we could call attention to things. That's changed. That has changed. Now, would, would you say, so I, I phrased the question, do OTs have a role? Would you say it's also a responsibility, a professional responsibility as well? I, I, to me, that seems like a, a, another step further. You know, when you say we have a role, it's sort of like it's optional. When I, I would like to think of it as a moral imperative. It is a responsibility. We have a responsibility to people to make sure that people don't just have equal access, but that there's equity, that people have whatever they need to be on a par with everybody else. So I agree with Emily, it is a responsibility. But Dr. Whaley has also said in the past, in other words, it is a duty, a duty to take a stand and a duty to, to identify these barriers when, when working with our patients. In order to be truly client-centered, we talk a lot about being client-centered, but we're not there fully. Yes, we talk the talk, but as Mirtha had said uh, in previous conversations, we need to walk the walk. Thank you for that. And you know what? It, it warms my heart to know that you guys were listening in class. And I wanted to say something um, because I don't think you guys are going to say it, but this, this in-depth look that you did at this issue and what the literature said, uh, not only created the article, but you went ahead and you submitted to the State Association in Florida and you submitted to AOTA and you were accepted to both. And more than being accepted, I would like uh, Katie to know that you were given the first award for the soul of occupational therapy, which said to me, this is really a foundational issue for the practice. And you guys were naming it and you were putting it out there for people to see. And I want to thank you for that. Absolutely. That's huge, guys. Congratulations. I don't think we could have done it without me, that's for sure. Um, she also helped us brainstorm a lot and um, really helped us um, understand our thoughts in a deeper level. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate having been invited to be part of this. And, and I have to tell you how much I learned from you. And I've mentioned this to you before. When, when you can step back and say, oh my goodness, this is happening. It's even happening to me and I wasn't aware of it. So it was, it was a collaboration and it was reciprocal. And I learned from you an enormous amount. I feel like this article might be something that is going to be a, a turning point or a, kind of a foundational article for the future. I just have a feeling that it'll be in a lot of professors' reading lists for people. That's the hope. I feel it's, it's going to be a big deal and it, it is already impacted so many people. So we, I just, we all thank you for your work. And I know how long it takes to go from idea to, well, I don't know, but I, I'm learning. It is not quick. So. I, I think it's what's really important too is the fact that we had that support from Murtha because we were talking about an issue that people don't want to talk about. It's like the elephant in the room. Whenever we bring up racism, it's like, oh my gosh, you don't speak about racism or politics within uh, the work setting, the healthcare setting, because it makes people uncomfortable. 
but you're making others uncomfortable by denying them occupations as that's their that's their right to engage in occupations you're making others uncomfortable by not addressing this um, you're making others uncomfortable by denying their experiences and uh, that support that she gave us because yes it's it's a controversial topic it is and the fact that she didn't dissuade us from it and allowed us to i mean not i don't want to say allowed us but she really uh helped us go forward with it and uh inspired us i would say and gave us that that confidence as well to you're like you know what we can make a stand despite making others feel uncomfortable because we're tired of seeing other people be uncomfortable and not afforded the opportunity to engage in their desired or necessary activities that they need to by something that people deem inappropriate for work, education, uh, whatever that may be, public spaces. And also, I mean, it's also important to note that microaggressions don't uh, solely affect people in terms of racism. You also have to look at how um, there are microaggressions that may be homophobic. There are also microaggressions that are sexist. Um, so we really have to look at this as a more so of a dynamic, a dynamic, uh, oh, made that find my words. Oh, are you talking about it's, it's broader than we realize that it is? It's broader than we realize that it is. It's very insidious. And, and I don't know if you guys have been following, but there's a new term that has surfaced for women of a certain age group like mine. And uh, the new one is calling us Karens when somebody wants to engage in micro insulting us. Uh, so yeah, it has to do with age. It has to do with gender. It has to do with sexual preference. It, it's anything that that puts down a group that is different from you. And sometimes it's not just that they're different from you, but that you may have, in the case of homophobia, that you may have an inclination towards something that is so unacceptable to you that the only way that you can deal with it is by putting people down. So, and by the way, I'm not a Karen, okay? I, I wanted to touch on the Karen part or just explain it uh, further. And I'm not quite sure if someone referred to you as a Karen or whatnot, but I do want to explain where that comes from. And essentially we're referring to someone as a Karen comes from is we were seeing instances where people were being mistreated because of the color of their skin, because of their sexual preference or their sexual orientation, but primarily it was because of the color of their skin. And so, for instance, um, cops being called on a black person for barbecuing in a park, that's something that was popular and they, uh, it was a white woman that called, or uh, cops simply being called on people of color that are doing day-to-day -day tasks, participating in, in life, um, they're not doing any type of crime or whatnot, or they're not engaging in any type of crime, uh, and someone calling the cops on them under the premise that their biases, their biases led to them, led them to believe that this person was doing something wrong, even though they were just engaging in their desired occupations. So that's where the term Karen came from. It's not necessarily to refer to women of a particular age or elderly people. It was more so to refer to people that were um, basically accusatory or 
falsely believing that people of color are engaging in illegal activities or they shouldn't be in their space. The most recent one I heard about is um, the cops being caught on Christian Cooper because he was, uh, when he was bird watching in New York City. I think everyone's heard about that one by now. And again, I think it's also getting into this a little bit more into depth. There's a lot of cancel culture happening right now. So you make one mistake and you are canceled. We saw that happen with the woman who called the cops on him. She lost her job. They're also thinking about pressing charges. So the question is really comes down to how far can we take this cancel culture? Are people allowed to make mistakes and and realize that they that they made a mistake and learn from those mistakes? Or do we just really cancel them all together? You know, what, how do we handle that? Um, Because at the end of the day, we have to give others the opportunity to learn from their mistakes if we really want to move forward. But people also have to be wanting to learn as well. And it's important that it's pointed out as, as well. So yes, it is about how far do we take this, but at the same time, we important that people understand that certain things aren't okay. And that's how I just relay it back to occupation. That's a occupational disruption. And we just want people to be aware that it's not okay to continue with your implicit biases, or it's maybe it's important that you reflect on your beliefs and see how that may affect another person and uh, view that other person as a human being and not not just attribute that person to the color of their skin and the stereotypes that's associated with the color of their skin or their age or their um, sexual orientation or their gender. And I think that's important, but I think we need to realize, and this is what was a result of an article like this one, is before people can come to understand, they have to be aware. Something has to come into the radar for them to even want to cancel it or want to dismiss it. Without awareness, we don't have the opportunity to create understanding and we don't have the opportunity to create change. And when we were talking before, it reminded me when I worked in psych that even though we knew that somebody was engaging in behaviors that were very detrimental to them and that were continuing to keep them uh, sick, Um, We also knew that people will not make a change until the discomfort of being in that position takes over the level of comfort they feel in the status quo. And I think what we're seeing right now is that there is a lot of discomfort in the population, people of all races and all religions and all beliefs. And so I think it's going to take that before we have a critical mass to turn it around. And the same thing happens in OT. We have to make OTs aware uh, and we have to make people uncomfortable before there will be a change. People and organizations, because I I keep going back to the fact that AOTA has been, has lagged behind so much into taking a stand for this, that we're so entrenched in the medical model in our association that we're not seeing the problems of society. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode of the OT Digest podcast. To hear more from Emily, Carlnicia, and Mita about action steps you can take and advocate for in regards to racial microaggressions, listen to part two.